Lord, we thank you for this time that we get to gather together on Palm Sunday. The start of Holy Week, Lord, we pray that you are leading us this morning. I pray that the words of my mouth, the meditation of all our hearts here would be acceptable in your sight. Lord, our rock, our redeemer, and our savior. We commit this time to you now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, good morning, St. George's. Great to be with you on this Palm Sunday. We had a little bit of a change up today, so yeah, excited to be with you and to share a word with you this morning. If you could get your Bibles out to Matthew chapter 21, we're going to be looking at verse 1 to 11. That's Matthew chapter 21, verse 1 to 11. Of course, today, Palm Sunday, it's the beginning of our Holy Week here at St. George's, and we're really excited uh, to be increasing our devotion um, this week, um, offering services every single day, uh, leading up to Good Friday and to Easter Sunday. So we're excited about that. Our passage here that we have before us is part of Jesus's self-disclosure. We see that this all culminates essentially in the cross and in the resurrection. But in Matthew's gospel, we have seen specific uh, moments when Jesus was disclosing who he is. We saw that in the transfiguration in Matthew 17, where his glory was on display, the Father affirming Jesus's identity. And now in our passage, Matthew 21, verse 1 to 11, we see Jesus as the messianic king and savior in fulfillment of prophecy. So these are pivotal moments. This is a pivotal moment in Jesus's life, and uh, it's important for us to look at today. So let's dive right in at verse 1. Matthew 21, verse 1 says, Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples. So Bethphage was a small town near Bethany, and Bethany is the location of the death of Lazarus. So this would be the southeast slope of the Mount of Olives. And we know that the Mount of Olives is where Jesus wept over Jerusalem. So we see here in verse 1, Jesus sending out his disciples, right? He came to Bethphage, the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples. So we see the authority of Jesus as a king sending out his own on mission. And he continues to reveal himself as king as we move through our passage. So it was in Jerusalem that Jesus would go to and then ultimately die on the cross. Let's look at verse 2. Saying to them, go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. So Christ gives his disciples these instructions. Christ knows exactly where the animals are located, and and thus we can relate this to his divine foreknowledge, his detailed foreknowledge, and this reveals his divine omniscience. And we also will see the significance of these animals, which will be discussed further in verse 5 when we get there. So Jesus would typically travel by foot, but acting as a king here, he orders his disciples to to get an animal for him. Let's look at verse 3. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, the Lord needs them. And he will send them at once. So at verse 3, we see that Jesus knows the disposition of the owners. 
And there's an emphasis on Jesus' authority here, which is better carried by the reference to the Lord, right? Of course, we could say that this may refer to the Lord God needing the animal, but most naturally, when Jesus says Lord here, he's referring to himself. Either way, there's a connection to be made here. Remember, Jesus is disclosing himself more and more in this narrative. So Jesus is here identifying himself with the Lord God, right? The Lord needs them. And he will send them at once, right? We see the obedience to the Lord there. So Jesus is operating and commanding then with the authority of the Lord. That's very clear. We see that connection. Let's look at verse 4 and 5. Verse 4 says, This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. So in verse 4 to 5 here, we see that Matthew starts to explain the Old Testament prophecy as it relates to Jesus' fulfillment of it. In verse 5, we have a quotation from Zechariah 9, verse 9, which prophesies that the coming king would ride on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Jesus chooses then to make the fulfillment of this prophecy unmistakable. The Jewish people would have clearly recognized this, right? He's fulfilling prophecy. He's disclosing himself more and more, and in this account before us, in a very direct and pointed way. He's showing us who he is, and he's showing the people who he is as well. So we see in verse 5, Behold, your king is coming to you. Right? So king denotes royalty, then, right? Jesus as king in the line of David. Important to note here, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey. Think about that for a second. He doesn't ride in on a war horse. Jesus comes in humble and mounted on a donkey as he comes into Jerusalem. Not on a war horse in a chariot. Jesus is not here disclosed as a warrior king. He's not coming to make war, but peace, specifically when it comes to our salvation, right? The salvation of his people. He's no mere worldly king, humble and mounted on a donkey, rather. And not only on a donkey, but on a young donkey, on a colt. See the humility and meekness there in our Lord. And again, he came for peace. Well, what kind of peace? Specifically, when referring to our salvation, we know from Romans 5, it says, because we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God. Right? Justified by faith in this king, we have peace with God. He's humble and mounted on a donkey. We see his humility. So again, Jesus begins to shift from hiding his identity to revealing it, right? Now is the time that he's revealing himself more and more to a multitude of people. Not only like the transfiguration where he revealed his glory to a select few, but now to a multitude, now to the crowds in Jerusalem, revealed to many who he is. 
So Jesus proclaims then his messiahship and his fulfillment of scripture. But remember, he also shows us this kind of peaceful approach that he's now making into the city. Right? Christ as the prince of peace. He's a different king. He's not like a worldly king. In fact, he's the king of peace. Of course, in the book of Revelation, we will see Jesus displayed in full power and judgment on unbelief. But for now, we see his meekness, right? Humble and mounted on a donkey. We see power under control, meekness, lowly. Let's look at verse 6. Verse 6 says, the disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. So again, we see the clear authority of Christ over his own. His kingly authority. And we see the total obedience then of the disciples. So our question today is, how can we learn from this? Are we quick to do what the Lord commands us to do? The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. Right? He says in verse 3, the Lord needs them. And the disciples go and retrieve the donkey for him. Right? What does the Lord need in our lives that we possess? Gifts that we might have that he is in need of, that he will use us as vessels. And we obey his commands. The disciples went and did as Jesus directed them. Let's look at verse 7. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks and sat on them. So Jesus rode the colt. Remember the young donkey, the ultimate example of humility. Right? See the symbolism there. These texts are layered with symbolism and important imagery. Them refers to the garments, okay? We see at verse 7, they brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. So he sat on the cloaks, right? But again, the donkey hinting that Jesus is a peaceful king. Just think about it. Nobody fights battles, terrorizes enemies, or rains blows on foes while riding on a young donkey. It's not a war horse, Do we see the character of Christ in this? So Matthew's mention of both animals is his way of highlighting what the other synoptists affirm. The animal that Jesus rode was the colt, the foal of the beast of burden. Let's look to verse 8 now. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. Right? Most of the crowd, a very large crowd, many, of, many people, a great number, spread their cloaks on the road. Spreading one's garments on the street was an ancient act of homage, right? reserved for high royalty. We actually see that picture in 2 Kings chapter 9. So this suggests that the crowd did recognize Jesus' claim to be the king of the Jews. Right? The long-awaited Messiah that was to come. Well, here he is, humble and mounted on a donkey. This is the triumphal entry. 
In Jesus' day, this would have resembled a victory parade, a king visiting a city in his kingdom. And of course, from church tradition, we call this Palm Sunday, because in John's gospel, it mentions that palm branches were present. Let's look at verse 9. So we start to see Jesus as Lord, right? Jesus as Lord, Jesus as King, and now we see him as Savior. Jesus as Savior, verse 9, and the crowds that and the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. So we see this triumphal entry here. And we see the quotation, Hosanna. Hosanna to the Son of David. Hosanna is a Hebrew expression meaning save or God save. And it became a cry of praise, right? Save us. And this is drawn by the crowds from Psalm 118, verse 25, which speaks of the Messiah entering the gates of righteousness to the acclamation of his subjects. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So we see this portrayal of Jesus as king, Jesus as Lord, and now Jesus as Savior. Hosanna, God save, Lord save us. Think about how this relates to our salvation. Remember what Jesus came to do. He didn't come to fight worldly battles. But he came to bring the gospel of salvation. The gospel in which we would inherit eternal life through faith in him. His perfect righteousness counted as our own. Hosanna, God save us. We also see in verse 9 the kingly role that the Messiah was to play. Right? As the son of David. In the line of David. A king. And so we see that portrayal. And we have to think about this for us today. Just like the crowds here on Palm Sunday crying out, Hosanna to the son of David. We are also in need of saving. And we're in need of a savior to save us from our sins, to rescue us from despair and eternal destruction. Hosanna, Lord save. Let us cry out with the crowd. Hosanna in the highest, probably equivalent to glory to God in the highest, which we see back in Luke 2 in the Christmas narrative. So the people praise God in the highest heavens for sending the Messiah. And this is also a cry for deliverance, as I mentioned. God save. Praise be to the Messianic King. Interesting to note, remember how Jesus is not a worldly king. He's not a worldly king. He's a different king. Jesus came to save, not by outwardly taking temporal power by force or by killing or fighting battles like worldly kings, but by seeming to lose temporal power and dying. That's how he has victory. That's how he secures our redemption, dying on the cross for our sins, triumphing then over death and Satan. Think about that triumphal entry. He's no mere worldly king. We have to put put ourselves in the text for a second. Think about what the crowds would think as they see 
this man riding in on a donkey, all the claims about him, and then ultimately going to the cross on Good Friday and dying. Well, it would have looked like a failure to their eyes, but he's not a worldly king. He rose on the third day, defeating death and Satan, triumphing over the grave. He's a different king. He came to save all our guilt and shame dealt with, that we could now stand before a holy God because of King Jesus' righteousness, credited as our own. King Jesus dying on the cross in our place, bearing the full wrath of the Father for us, and eternal life in his kingdom being freely offered to us as a gift. He's a different king. Let's look at verse 10. Verse 10, we hear, we hear, And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? Who is this? The whole city was stirred up, everybody, all things. It was caused, it was shaken, it was shook, it was stirred up. Who is this? Well, Jesus reaches the goal of his journey as he enters Jerusalem, right? The king coming to Jerusalem and then going on to cleanse the temple, claiming authority over it, the king. So the city sees his arrival as that of a disturbing presence in some sense. But those who are accompanying Jesus see his identity as the son of David. So the word of Jesus' arrival shakes the city. And think about this for a second. Jerusalem is packed, right? It's packed with pilgrims for Passover in this time. So think about that. Picture that scene as he rides in on the donkey. And the crowds are saying, Hosanna, save us. God, save us. So we see him as Lord, King, and Savior. And at verse 10 at the end there, it says, Who is this? Who is this really about in whom there is so much excitement? Who is this? Well, this question stands before us today as well. Who is he? That question, it divides history, it divides nations, it divides families, and even perhaps our own hearts. Who is this? Who is this Jesus? Well, he answers us in the Gospels. He says, I am he. Who is this king? I am he. He is the Messiah. He is the King. He is the Lord. He is the Savior. He is the eternal God. He's the great I Am. Who is this? He's the King of the universe. His name is Jesus. And this King brings salvation. Let's look at verse 11. And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. Although his authoritative teaching and miracles showed that Jesus was a prophet, right? A prophet mighty in deed and word, which we see in Luke 24. The crowd's reception of him 
as the long-awaited son of David had unmistakable royal overtones. But their answer here in verse 11 is more inadequate than false, right? We know who he is. He's the great I am. At verse 11, they say this is the prophet Jesus. Yes, he is a prophet. From Nazareth of Galilee. Think about this for a second. Of course, Jesus is a prophet, and the term prophet could refer to, and most likely does refer to, the long-awaited prophet. Yet if the term prophet sounds positive, then being from Nazareth does not, because nothing good comes from Nazareth, which we see in John 1, verse 46. So think about how Jesus displays himself. It's not as the world would expect. It's not as the world would expect in all that he does. But it's deeper than that. So the crowds underestimate Jesus even as they praise him. And this grand scene ends in a little confusion. Jesus performs no miracle. He starts no worldly war. Instead, he walks into his temple. And think about that. He walks into his temple. Because he claims authority over it. Because he is Lord. He is the Lord God. His house. So Matthew 21 verse 1 to 11 then really teaches us that Jesus is a king and he has the right to define himself and his reign. It's not what the world would expect. But he is who he says he is. Surprising that a prophet should come from such an unlikely place, Nazareth in Galilee. So that's the question for us this morning then on Palm Sunday. Do we cry out with the crowds, God save us? Do we even feel like we need saving? Do we understand that we cannot hit the mark We cannot keep the law perfectly, but that the king kept it in our place. The one who came to save as king, lord, messiah, savior, and eternal God. He's paid the price for our sins. And he's lived the perfect life, keeping all of the law's requirements in our place. Now by faith in this king, we'll be able to come into the eternal kingdom by faith in this king. So let's not miss this, friends. Behold, our king comes, humble and mounted on a donkey, the king who brings salvation. It's not what the world expected. No worldly battles here, not for this king, but spiritual ones, more important ones, the king who brings salvation, that we would have peace with God, the forgiveness of all our sins, and the heavenly kingdom at the end of our days, through true faith in him. Who is this king? Well, folks, let's make this Easter special. If we haven't done it already, let us bow our knee to Jesus as Lord Master and King.
and receive him as Savior. The one who gives us eternal life as a free gift. The one who grants us his perfect record. Heaven at the end of our days because of him who loved us. Let's bow our heads now in prayer. Lord, we thank you for this time. I pray, Lord, that you're stirring in the hearts of all of us here. And if there's anyone here who has not accepted the Lord as Savior, I pray that your spirit is moving in their hearts and that they would. That they would accept you as king, king of the universe, the God of the universe, the Lord, the Almighty One. Who is this king? You've answered it for us, Lord. You are the great I am. This Easter season, I pray that we come in close contact with you. That we're obedient to our king when you need us. I pray that we're vessels, Lord. That you use us as vessels. Your Holy Spirit dwelling in us. And through this holy week, as we increase our devotion as a church family, through our prayer services, through understanding what you've done for us on Good Friday and triumphing over the grave on Sunday. You're our King, Lord. We thank you for this time. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.